Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. America has a right to know if these whistleblower movies are uh, entertaining and of quality. Welcome to Be Real, guys. My name is Chance Solomon Pfeiffer. And on this side, I'm Noah Ballard. How are you, friend? Um, I'm okay. It's, uh, it's, it's been a real week, both in my work life, in my personal life, and in watching all three of these movies. So, I'm... Uh, it's good to hear your voice. Yeah, we are here today to talk three Hollywood whistleblower movies with the centerpiece and our leadoff film being Oliver Stone's Snowden, which came out last week, stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and it is uh, the twentieth, late 20th century, uh, and in this case 21st century obsessed director's take on the story of uh, former NSA uh, operative turned whistleblower Edward Snowden, and then after that we're going to talk about uh, Steven Soderbergh's Aaron Brockovich, and we're going to talk about Michael Mann's The Insider. Noah, should we say you got anything you want to say about Snowden before we get to uh, the guest convo? Um, sure. Well, let it be known before we get into it too that like this movie was not financially successful, so I feel kind of kind of weird talking about it considering it was such an important thing that people followed when it happened but it seems like i think after two weeks we can say that like nobody gave a shit about this movie yeah i guess it it definitely has not done done wonders it's in like the 15 million region of its 40 million dollar budget yeah all of which is spent on cast most of which was probably spent on Nicolas cage for no reason but let's hear this interview first <laughs> you want it to be special forces yes sir why do you want to join the CIA? I'd like to help my country make a difference in the world. The average test time is five hours. I'm done, sir. It's been 40 minutes. 38 minutes? What should I do now? Whatever you want. The deputy director of the NSA offered me a new position. Can you tell me anything about it? <laughs> you know I can't. We're very happy to be joined today on the show by a guest. He is a culture and entertainment writer and critic at GQ, uh, and we're going to be discussing a piece he wrote last week about Edward Snowden resonances, name checks, proxy characters, plot devices uh, in uh, big-budget Hollywood films. Uh, Scott Meslow, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks. My pleasure to be here. We're very happy to have you. Um, So you talk in this piece uh, that appeared uh, in GQ last week about uh, movies like Captain America Winter Soldier, Jason Bourne, the seventh Fast and the Furious movie um, that are picking up um, on sort of Snowden in the headlines or like just at least, maybe at least the resonances of that story about mass surveillance or like panoptic devices that become the key um, to these uh, to these movies to, to push the action forward. Um, how and when did you sort of uh, take notice of that? I think the first one where it really popped for me was Captain America the Winter Soldier, uh, which mm-hmm. was fascinating because it came out so soon after the Snowden revelations. You know, we're talking less than a year. And in that time, we've got that built into kind of the key structure of that movie is Captain America realizing that there's this mass oversight coming from S.H.I.E.L.D. of all of the people in the United States. And his, his split from S.H.I.E.L.D. is result in that it ends with Black Widow actually leaking all of that information onto the internet, just like Snowden. And it was just, right. did they, was this a coincidence? Did they have all this figured out? Well, you know, when they were writing the script, did they build it in? Because it just, it felt so resonant for the event we had just been through. And, you know, sure enough, they, they, you know, Anthony Russo, the co-director, later gave an interview saying just that, that, you know, it kind of came out while they were developing the film, and they just thought, this is exactly the kind of scene we want to explore with this character. Yeah. So in light of that, and then sort of like looking forward to uh, the other two movies you talk about, uh, Fast 7 and and Jason Bourne, do you get the sense that uh, the creators of these movies are, um, 
are they are they taking like the feelings that people are having about mass surveillance and sort of weaving it into the fabric of the movies or do you find it a little bit more convenient than that sort of like the thing that i kept thinking of was like is this how people in like 90s action movies use the idea of like loose nukes that had like come down through uh soviet republics what do you think i do think definitely even just name checking snowden has become kind of a shorthand for like look we're a relevant action movie we're talking about <laughs> this isn't just dumb popcorn fun right and i but i think it's interesting that these movies are engaging on that level because it doesn't, you know, the thing that's really fascinating to me is you look at all of the blockbusters about, you know, kind of the Snowden-style mass surveillance is they all end with, oh, we we all agree that this is totally wrong and we're shutting it down, the bad guys were doing it, the good guys managed to stop it, or at the very least to leak the information that it's happening. Yeah. It's such a wish fulfillment, you know, which Hollywood, of course, is a place of wish fulfillment, but it's a wish fulfillment on an issue that I think for the public at large seems to be murkier. I think the bigger, you know, when it comes to the real-life political implications of this, I think one of the things that's been surprising is how blasé a lot of people feel about masturbation. Sure. It is uniformly painted as the ultimate villainy in these movies because, you know, you attach a scary face to it and you have your, you know, uncompromising good guy, a Jason Bourne or a Captain America or a James Bond, against it. And so that kind of tells us how to feel about it. Because what they're not doing is they're not really staging a conversation or a debate about um, the, you know, security versus um, surveillance. Uh, the, there's no one mounting uh, <laughs> the bad guy from Sherlock and Tommy Lee Jones uh, are not like mounting like very cogent arguments on behalf of national security. Um, yeah, you look at you look at Captain America, and it's like, oh, sure, we're all going to agree this is bad if you've got Robert Redford secretly working for a Nazi organization that has infiltrated government. <laughs> like, that is right. not a way to have a real conversation about this issue. So do you think that that is a product of the nature of these movies, or could it also be tied to the fact that you can't have a great debate about something that in the real world is largely classified? I think that's a good point. I think part of it is, I mean, obviously there is, I mean, I think genuinely there is a liberal bias in Hollywood. I think most of the sure. people making these movies are correctly, you know, correctly or incorrectly, depending upon how you want to look at it, worried about the implications of mass surveillance. Mm-hmm. So, so I think they are not... You're, you're less likely to have someone making a movie about why the NSA is secretly heroic and Edward Snowden is a villain. That's just not how this industry works. Right. But I also think, you know, you can only engage with these issues so much before you need to get to the next set piece where, you know, Jason Bourne beats someone up with a magazine or, you know, Captain America jumps off the jetliner. Like, you, you can't, you can't really, and I, th- I think, in fact, some of those movies have been a little overpraised for, you know, basically by by including this subject, they're being treated as if they're engaging with the subject, and I don't think those are the same thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think it's more, you know, you're, you're, particularly with the movies we're talking about, which are so, you know, obviously there's so much money in them, they have to have international appeal, uh, and they have franchise implications, you know, you can't really, you can't really fully commit to any point of view on this issue, because it's just not what those movies are made for in the end. So let's transition to a movie that uh, definitely commits to a point of view on the issue, um, Oliver Stone's Snowden. Uh, it's not a super uh, sophisticated question, Scott, but I just wanted to ask you, um, where do you fall? Like, what did you think of this movie? Like, did you like it? Because I w- as I was reading reviews, I wouldn't say anyone adored it or hated it, but like between the 20 yard lines, people felt a lot of different ways. How did you feel? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um... It's a movie that I think is well executed, especially for Oliver Stone, who I think is sometimes a filmmaker who can grade on me a little stylistically. Uh-huh. Um, you know, he clearly what he was doing was doing a character study that kind of doubles as a love letter. He's really he's not even necessarily engaged in detail. You know, if you want to engage with the argument about what's going on, watch Citizen Four. You know, the documentary about it. Of course, his is really about the human being, Edward Snowden, and I think. In a weird way, if, you know, especially because I, I presume Oliver Stone, who has got to be our most political filmmaker, is still working. I, I presume I know pretty strongly which side of this debate he falls on. And mm-hmm. if you want to take a mass audience and have them learn and care about this issue, it may actually be the smarter approach to getting the message out. To say, come watch this movie with an actor you like, and we're going to kind of paint this person as a hero and explain why he's a hero in a very kind of character-driven way. 
and then you might leave the theater knowing and caring more about the issue and explore it on your own. How hopeful are you about the fact that maybe that's happening for people who would not see Citizen Four either because like they don't watch documentaries or it's just not something they'd ever watch? My guess is in the end, this is still a movie that's basically just preaching to the messenger. Sure. You know, I just I have a hard time seeing someone who doesn't already have any kind of opinion about the NSA and mass surveillance one way or the other, you know, not knowing what they're getting into when they see this movie. You know, if you're if you're a hardcore, the you know privacy violations are worth it or losing some civil liberties in order for security, you're probably not going to go on a Saturday afternoon and spend 15 bucks to see snow, right? Like, right. You're kind of you're going to self-select yourself out of that audience. So I'm not sure it'll have any impact other than educating people who are already interested um, and probably in Snowden's camp on you know more of the story and maybe maybe get them to explore in a little more detail, maybe get them to do some activism. But you know, in the end, you know, movies also don't have to be performative. You don't need to see a movie and be inspired to do something. You can just see a movie, and I think it accomplishes that. I think it's probably my favorite Oliver Stone movie in I don't know ten years. Yeah. That's not a uh, a super. Um, that's not a murderer's row. His last ten years, I wouldn't yeah. say. Um, I, I wanted to bounce an, an idea off of you, uh, and you sort of. I think you used the phrase a uh, character study slash love letter, and I wondered if those two things, in some ways, are a little uh, paradoxical. In that, in some, I feel like he's sort of tried to make a movie that actively humanizes Edward Snowden in his in his home life, um, but in route to doing so, um, has like built the blocks of like a genius and like a paragon of morals. And I wonder if that sort of misses out on what might have inspired people about Citizen Four, which is that he just seemed like a guy who was like up against everything and showed courage. No, I think that's true. You know, you've got stuff like that great Rubik's Cube scene, which is really well-directed and really fun, you know, where he smuggles out the information. Yeah, it is. That is straight-up superhero stuff. Yeah. That, that, is, that could not be painting him as, like, yeah, he's the coolest, most clever guy. You know, you've got... You, he's, he's basically depicted as flawless. And, you know, I, I've, never, I've never met Edward Snowden. You know, I actually don't know a ton about his biography beyond what I've seen in this film and in Citizen Four. But... I have to imagine he's a little more complicated than that. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I agree that it, you're almost making, you're making a better point if you show that this is some, you know, just some computer analyst guy who just, he happened to be the one to speak up because he had this particular compunction about this issue. But, but I think kind of what's really horrifying about the, you know, not to get, not to, you know, kind of dive into the political pool on the side, but in theory, you know, what's horrifying about the implications of this is, kind of the blase nature with which it was handled, you know? They're probably the most chilling scene in the movie is when he first learns about this stuff and the other analyst is like, yeah, sure, we can do this whenever, no big deal, and doesn't even think of this as really an important constitutional violation in any way. So then, and you talk about this at the at the end of your piece, how did it strike you when the actual Edward Snowden appears uh, at the end of the movie? Did you feel, had it all been building to this, were you grown? I mean, it's pretty on the nose, but that's kind of Oliver Stone for you. Um, did it like break a wall of the movie for you? What did you feel? I think at that, you know, I, I, I was so aware of what the movie wanted to be saying the whole time anyway. Yeah. It just, it just felt Oliver Stone-esque. And to me, in the end, it didn't ring that differently than, you know, than what you do uh, based on a true story movie and you show the picture of the real people at the end. You know, you do the, you know, this is what happened to them after the story ended. It's, it's a little more elegant than that, or, you know, at least tries to do something a little more dazzling cinematically by just swapping in and all of a sudden. But I thought, you know, it, it was essentially, it was essentially Oliver Stone very affectionately giving Edward Snowden a happy ending. Um, but I think the more interesting thing to me is how that lands on an audience and what the effect is, you know, what the intended effect is. Mm-hmm. The way that I wrote about it in my story was basically turning Edward Snowden into a movie star briefly, because... You know, this guy who can't even come back to the United States is now in thousands of theaters across the country. Is you know, He's looming over the audience for a sudden. He's getting the sure. chance, even briefly, to give a very specific message that I don't know if it was written. I don't know if Snowden and Stone worked it out together. You know, but, but he's, it, it's a propagandistic thing that he's getting to do. 
I'll uh, I'll let you go after this one, Scott. But I- I'm curious, ducking back to uh, the kind of um, the kinds of movies, uh, the popcorn movies that we talked about with uh, Winter Soldier and Spectre and Fast Seven and Jason Bourne. Um, when you think about where we could go after this, is there a step past movies like this? Is there is there a, a a blockbuster or maybe more of like a mid tier movie that you think actually could have um, uh, a conversation or a debate or maybe even just put on the anxiety that like we as a society tend to think about surveillance with a little bit more than those movies? I think that's a good question. Um, I think one thing that Snowden does well that could kind of paint a, you know, something for future filmmakers to follow is it does a pretty good job visualizing something that is very boring, which is surveillance. You know, they've got <laughs> kind of these complex visuals full of pictures and data points and you're seeing how things are connecting. And I think for something that is so inherently uncinematic, that's a way to say, like, you get the idea of what's going on, but it is not, you know, you're not staring at a computer screen in the same yeah. way. And I think that was a smart way to handle it. But in terms of, in terms of a storytelling perspective, what I would really love to see is something that kind of takes the approach of something like Zero Dark Thirty, where you, you get what is kind of really engaging with the argument that there are these, you know, there are these real people involved in this who have serious moral compunctions about what they're doing, and you can theoretically justify stuff, even as you look at, you know, the cost to human rights, the cost to civil, you know, to civil liberties, the cost of the people personally tasked with doing this. You know, Snowden sure. is such an outsized figure at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, a movie about someone who actually somewhat believes in the NSA's mission but feels morally troubled by it, I think you could do a fictionalized story that would be fascinating and have a little more give and take on this is the world we live in now. Clearly, this is not the most, you know, the most efficient way to handle this is not watching everyone, but how do we do better? I think I'd love to see a filmmaker pick that up and run with it. Well, Scott, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. Uh, pleasure to talk to you, man. Yeah, my pleasure, Chance. Think of it as a Google search, except instead of searching only what people make public, we're also looking at everything they don't. Emails, chats, SMS, whatever. Yeah, but which people? The whole kingdom, Snow White. How about we start here? When I think about Oliver Stone's interest in a story like this, it's both like very obvious because he loves the idea of up-the-chain American power conspiracies. And yet, as a 70-year-old... I felt like his mentality coming to this movie, it didn't exactly have the the sort of like white knuckle obsessive quality of the movies he made when he was younger. You know oh, certainly not. Does he know does he know or care about people on Facebook? I don't think so. If I can paint a brief picture for you, Chance, uh, I feel like I love it when you paint brief pictures. I feel like the quality of this movie was sort of uh spoiled for me because living in New York City occasionally you run into famous people right so oh yeah I actually saw uh Oliver Stone at uh, a restaurant in New York City hanging out with Zachary Quinto and then I put it together later it was like they had just wrapped the production of Snowden this is a while ago. Oh yeah, you texted me that, and Quinto yeah. plays uh, journalist Glenn Greenwald in the movie. So I, but I remember thinking that evening, looking at Oliver Stone just yeah. sucking down oysters with Zachary Quinto, like just patting each other on the back. I just knew this movie, like whatever he was working on, was going to be bad. Um, and then I came home and uh, looked it up on my laptop and found that it was a uh, way too soon biopic of uh, Edward Snowden, and I was like, "Yep, suspicions confirmed." So, what do you think of the performances? Um, there certainly are a lot of them, and they're certainly all oh, intense. There are many. Everybody, yes. everybody wants to get their Bruce McGill screaming at a high-paid tobacco <laughs> attorney moment in in this movie. Not everyone can be Bruce McGill, though. Oh my God, Reese Ifans in this movie as like, well, because Reese Ifans is he's having some fun. Yeah, he's, so he's basically playing Al Pacino's character from The Recruit, where he, like, takes this young guy with, like, hey, you don't have a high school diploma? I see something in you, and I'm going to shape it the way I want to. Tom Wilkinson's in this movie for some reason. Yeah. Shailene Woodley's in this movie for some reason. Nicolas Cage, like well, I said, is in this movie for some reason. It, the framing, if I were remaking this movie, I would make it from Glenn Greenwald's point of view. Right. 
what Edward Snowden did, like, plot-wise, is not that interesting. Like, what he... I think the media circus around what he did was the most interesting part of it, and, like, what Obama, like, and the response, and, like, I thought the... There's this montage at the end, like, what happens to him, that includes, I think, the most interesting stuff of the movie. That would have been such a more interesting movie had they not put all the emphasis on physically getting the story out. Like in the insider, the point of the story is to get the things out. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting because it's not from Russell Crowe's perspective, who is the whistleblower. It's from uh, Al Pacino's perspective, who's the producer trying to tell this story. Yeah. And so I, I agree with you that this movie misses the mark because Zachary Quinto and Melissa Leo are not the leads of this movie. The corporations, the powers have to be, are so interestingly, like, different in all three of these movies. In Aaron Brockovich's, they barely respond um, to what she's trying to do. In in this, in Snowden, they are devilish. And in The Insider, they are, like, amorphous and shadowy and everywhere and invade the consciousness of, like, the, the good guys. Right. But this movie's very black and white. Yeah... And I mean, I think it's like a problem fundamentally with Oliver Stone as a director because he, I mean, he sort of fashions himself like in the realm of Edward Snowden. So it's just him like poking his elbow at a buddy of his, I felt like, in a lot of this. <laughs> yeah. Like the morality of the yeah. story is like Edward Snowden is not a conflicted person. I mean, in the movie, I'm sure he is in real life. Like the only really internal conflict for him is like, am I being a shitty boyfriend? You you bring up a good point. A lot of time is spent um wanting to know the human Edward Snowden by way of putting him in arguments about his health and his work and how much of himself he gives to his girlfriend now wife I believe um but it's a recurring theme in in these movies too where you have these sort of like these titans of film who make these movies about these like great interesting people but in all three of them, all Soderbergh, Mann, and Stone, all kind of like want to go back to the kitchen to see what's going on in their normal life. And it feels like when we go to the kitchen, none of them have any idea how normal people behave, what like emotional stakes are between people. Like those are weird scenes that I think are kind of like obligations in these movies to make it grounded. But yeah, it's I think where the movies succeed and where they don't is it hangs in how human are these people and how much of them are just like mouthpieces for you. Yeah. And you know what? If you want to make the um, I think if you want to do the full stone version of this movie, I watched JFK last week. And it's so interesting because it's the same kind of thing, right? Like Costner's Jim Garrison is like obsessed with reopening the assassination case and his home life is of course suffering because of it. But in the interactions that Garrison has with his wife, it's just so obvious that this thing has overtaken his life and stone is on his side and you're on his side and you're like yes i get that wife and kids are upset but like look at what we're dealing with here and in this movie i think we're supposed to take it on the level i think we're supposed to be measured about like oh this is as important because humans are as important it's like but oliver stone's not very good at saying that humans are normal and important right Unless they're yeah. in some sort of... He's, like, bad at sort of articulating a stable home life or stable, like, suburban drama. Like, he's very good yeah. at those, like, office scenes of, like, you know, he's really... Like, when the 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 little card he has all the intel on, like, falls and the guy steps yeah. on it. Like, that's a beautiful scene. Lakeith Stanfield? Who's he... Where, uh, where's he from? Love Lakeith Stanfield. Well, he's in that show, Atlanta. Oh, he's I haven't watched that yet. Is that good? That's great. I love it. Nice. But, like, that's a nice moment. Or, like, the interaction with uh, Clint Eastwood's son. Like, that's kind of nice. You know, even the scene with him getting away with the files is, like, pretty interesting. Like, just cinematically. But then you put him and Shailene Woodley into an apartment in Japan. And they're like, I'm just going to close this zipper now. (laughs) You know, like, they don't have have anything physical to do. And their lines aren't very good. And, you know... Listen, Chance, you live in like a princess world where nothing go, no one gets hurt and nothing goes wrong. I live in yeah. the government world. The other thing, and I think the, really, the movie hangs in the fact for me, or I guess for anyone, do you think that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is giving a good performance or do you think he's just doing like a really good impression? 
So I don't know if he's doing a great impression. I was into what he was doing, I realized, when the actual Snowden showed up. But it's not like a dead-on impression. What did you think? Um, I thought at first it was sort of annoying, kind of like an impression. But then I sort of got into it. But then I really didn't like that choice of having him there at the end. Uh, Before we get to ratings, 30 seconds on Cage. Let's do it. Okay. Can we also talk about the cinematic style of him just zooming in on everyone's neck moles? It's like, why are you behind Timothy Oliphant's ear? Is it just because you want to see the mole on his neck? I think it might be. We gotta talk a little bit of Cage. I don't even know what there is to say. Like, he's in such a different film. He ends up being sort of a... um, Like a an all but forgotten kind of angel on the shoulder of, of Snowden, you know, of his two mentors. He can go the way you can go the way of the cage or you can go the way of the iPhones. Um, and he ultimately goes the way of the cage, but cage is only in two scenes. One in which he introduces himself by being like, what vices do you have? And he's just like, I don't have any vices. And he's just like, well then this tech whorehouse is great. The best little whorehouse around. It's like Nicholas cage, please stop saying whorehouse. Uh, people yeah the only laugh in the whole film was people laughing at him saying whorehouse in my screening (laughs) and let's briefly put ourselves in the shoes of the the prop guy who oliver stone was like hey look prop guy uh we're gonna have uh, snowden scanning the walls of cage's office so we're gonna need you to have to make us up a young cage in his class photo oh my (laughs) god (laughs) Prop person's like, is he in a lot of the movie? Is he important? And Oliver Stone's like, why don't you just do it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the fun, like the great thing about Cage being there is he was treated with like, like his character was treated with such importance. Like he had the prop of him as a younger man. They definitely gave him like yeah. the best hairpiece, like on the rack, and they even definitely. let him like s- smoke a cigarette on screen, which is like pretty cool. Like he had some great scenes. None of them amounted to literally anything. <laughs> But, like, while he was there, like, he was treated well. And they, like, left in the majority, I think, of what they shot of him. It sounds like you're saying he might be a legacy actor at this point, And I like that look for him. Oh, my God. He's absolutely, like, throw Gene Hackman in at the end there and see what happens. He's become that. Let's uh, hear how our rating system works. And then we will uh, give our final word on Snowden. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good, good is easy. Things that make you feel smart and happy and that for both reasons you'd want to do again. Like watching The Departed or Jaws or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good, good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad, bad is easy, too. Things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad, bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good, bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good, bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say, I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. I found this movie to be messy in Oliver Stone form, um, to be indulgent, to be kind of silly. But I have to admit, like, I sort of liked watching these actors sort of show up and have a great time. Some of them, like, embarrassing themselves just a little bit by, like, what they had to do. Um, And then, ultimately, some pretty good direction and some some moments that felt exciting uh as our get as scott our guest uh talked about when uh like the guy was sort of like opening up the door to show like snowden how this whole thing works and calling him snow white like there were moments i felt that were interesting and some of the vignettes were so loud that they appealed to me so i think i'm gonna say bad good 
Yeah, I think like something about this movie, like when I walked in, I I only I knew that it would only be at best bad good. Um, yeah, yeah. Like the cast is too big. You, you know from like the opening scene that it's like it's not going to be a coherent film. Um, oh, certainly not. So, like, at that point, I was like, okay, am I just going to enjoy some ridiculous moments? Yes. Uh, or am I going to be just bored to tears like the woman next to me who fell asleep? Um, so, I'm going to have to go. I just... Like there are the American some, public. Right. So, there are some, like, charming moments. There's some nice scenes in there. But, like, fundamentally, there's not. it's not bad enough to be bad good. I okay. so I think it might just be bad bad. I won't fight you on it. You didn't hate it though. I didn't hate it. It's a soft bad bad. Um okay. But it's not something if somebody came up to me it's like what's a politically conscious uh drama that's currently in theaters that I should check out? I'd probably that would be the only <laughs> circumstance in which I would recommend them seeing Snowden. <laughs> it sounded like the person who came up to you was almost Nicolas Cage. Right. Can we get to Brockovich next? I would love nothing more. All right. 2000s Aaron Brockovich, uh, a film unlike Snowden that I think just about everyone in the world saw when it came out. Yeah. Um, And I had to, since I was uh, nine, I think when this came out, um, little Wikipedia told me, that Steven Soderbergh directed this and the re- film we recently reviewed, Traffic, in the same year and was nommed for directing both at the Oscars. Yep. That was a, there, has was there a, been a year like that in recent memory? For anyone? No. For anyone. Yeah. You, I guess you need someone like Soderbergh who so, works so fast and so malleable and just, like, brings... I don't know, man. What do you think he does here? I think he's just bringing, like, style and a steady hand and some actors who like him and and getting it done for a movie that a lot of people enjoyed. I think like the brilliance about this movie and it, like also with traffic is that you have ultimately like, like several different storylines towards the end. So you can almost make it like you can almost make it as several movies at once, which traffic sort of is. And so probably technically it was easier to make. Um, mm-hmm. And this one sort of does the same thing. I mean, we're in the lawyer's office or we're in uh, her house and then there's some courtroom stuff, but mostly we're in some pretty simple sets with some pretty simple set pieces. And so I don't know how he got the energy to make two motion pictures of this quality in one year, but I think it's because he's like very smart with how to make a movie and it's doing it simply, but like maximizing what he has and what he has are great actors and actresses and like a pretty solid screenplay. Yeah. If traffic felt like an opus, this to me, it's almost like TV esque, like of the, oh, like yeah. in the era of like TNT dramas of the 2000s, like the soundtrack, the establishing shots. It's very like simple and effective. It's not afraid to be a mainstream movie about like a woman doing something cool. Let's be honest here. $20 million is more money than these people have ever dreamed of. Oh, see, now that pisses me off. First of all, since the demur, we have more than 400 plaintiffs in. Let's be honest, we all know there are more out there. They may not be the most sophisticated people, but they do know how to divide, and $20 million isn't shit when you split it between them. Aaron. Second of all, these people don't dream about being rich. They dream about being able to watch their kids swim in a pool without worrying that they'll have to have a hysterectomy at the age of 20, like Rosa Diaz, a client of ours, or have their spine deteriorate like Stan Bloom, another client of ours. So before you come back here with another lame-ass offer, I want you to think real hard about what your spine is worth, Mr. Walker. Or what you might expect someone to pay you for your uterus, Miss Sanchez. Then you take out your calculator and you multiply that number by 100. Anything less than that is a waste of our time. So Aaron Brockovich opens um, with the titular Aaron uh, sort of struggling to find work. And she's got two ex-husbands and three kids and it's like all of her bills are past due and she like desperately needs money. And that's, it's, it's really brilliantly well done. If we can talk about it piece by piece, like just the first scene of this movie is brilliant. 
her like trying to get a yeah. nursing job with no nursing degree and the doctor on the other side being like, I would, would love to help you, but like you need a nursing degree to be a nurse. She gets into a car. Oh, and that's like the most brilliant thing about it because she immediately gets into that car accident afterwards. This is like over the opening credits. So you don't think mm-hmm. that there's going to be any like big inciting violent thing happen, but then it just does. You don't think it's going to be 10 Cloverfield Lane, but it is. Absolutely. But then, so she gets this job, she goes to this lawsuit about this car accident, and she doesn't win, but she meets this lawyer, and so she still desperately needs money, and the lawyer won't return her calls, so she just shows up to the office one day and says, like, if you won't help me, like, I'm just going to work here, Mm -hmm. and just (laughs) give me anything, like, I need a job, like, please, like, I've got these three kids to feed, and, um... Albert Finney, uh, poor man's Michael Gambon, uh, is the lawyer. <laughs> he might be a rich man's Michael Gambon. I'm not sure. But anyway, Albert Finney... Plays Ed Masry. And um, he gives her a job because he's got this heart of gold. And he assigns her to file some things. And she comes... She, like, finds these things. And she's doing a real estate deal or something. And she finds these medical records. And so she simply asks one of the... Well, the Ed Masary, the Albert Finney character, if she can like look into like why this is the case. And he's like, yeah, go for it. He's like on the phone distracted. And what she ends up uncovering is this like massive cover up where this energy company was spilling this chemical into this town's water supply. Yeah. And they all uh, got like very mm-hmm. ill from it. And then they tried to cover it up by saying it was something else and paying for all their medical expenses. And right. what we are launched into is a, a whistleblower story of a classic sort. Um, so can we talk about what's fundamentally, like, amazing about this movie? Sure. You talking about the Finney-Roberts dynamic? I was going to say more in a narrative sense, but yes. But no, on a narrative sense, what's so fascinating about it is you have a well-rounded character who has one desire, and their one desire is to figure out what do my skill, what, what does my skill set allow me to do as an occupation? Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. just makes for so many interesting scenes, especially the beginning where she's trying to fit her square peg into these round holes that she's been given. And then you realize very quickly that her skill set is gathering a lot of information about people and figuring out how to organize it. Yeah. Talking to them like a normal human being in this world where um, the corporate lawyers they eventually become involved with, but also Ed Masry are just like not able to communicate with these um, rural property owners. You have this very clearly very talented person who's just not been given any sort of chances to succeed. And then when finally she is given a chance to succeed... You know, the outcome is miraculous. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of that juxtaposition throughout the film, especially with the woman who's working with the other lawyer. Mm -hmm. Because essentially they have the same roles, but one of them went through the school of hard knocks and the other one probably went through Harvard or something. Right. And you have that incredible scene where they like stand off against each other. (laughs) And... She's like, you're stupid. You don't know the like phone numbers of everyone here. Like, you made a bad like collection of these files, and she just like spits back at her with no remorse or no, you know, pause. That of course I know everyone's numbers, and that like filing system makes sense to me because like I'm the soul of this case. And yeah. the woman takes it a step further. Is like, prove it. Yeah, I, I love that scene. And you know what? If you think of Julia Roberts's the highlights of her career as being a collection of the uh, big mistake, huge moments from Pretty Woman, like this movie is full of those. Oh, absolutely. She's been underestimated, and she has the right answer, and she's about to slam the door in your face. And sometimes, like, it's a little much. You know the. Uh, it, the scene where she's like sick and like Ed Masry's like it's not personal and she's just like everything's personal was like a lot like uh, Mark Ruffalo yelling in Spotlight for his Oscar reel but there are a lot of great ones. Can we can we just give it like a hard pivot to White Trash uh, Aaron Eckhart? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Aaron Eckhart uh, is her love interest who uh, becomes her drifter babysitter. Um, she meets him uh, in the neighboring yard where he's fixing his 
motorcycle and immediately hits on her and he's got do-rag and blonde braids and just an embarrassing uh (laughs) volume and shape of facial hair like it's not clear whether it's more embarrassing if it's real or fake i was just gonna ask you do you think there's a clause in his contracts that say no matter what like i'll do any kind of facial hair you want but you have to show my chin and yeah. so, like, then they had to come up with the most aggressive beard they could that still showed his chin in, like, a logical way. The cleft, yeah. The cleft. He's got a very prominent cleft. Oh, the Eckhart, if you uh, will. So he's just got a ridiculous white guy Fu Manchu. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's such a, for as silly of a part as it is, like, he's very good at it. He's very kind, but he still has to deliver lines like, um, oh, shit, where is it? I like your kids. They keep it simple. Like Aaron Eckhart, were you read like a former Hell's Angel just talking about how you like how kids keep it simple? Like he's just a goofy man. Well, that's the thing. Like he's like dumb enough to be, you know, her romantic partner slash childcare provider. Yeah, I mean, also the Finney Roberts dynamic is great. Well, that's what's so funny about it is because like sometimes you need to say it fast and like she'll like have to jump in because he can't say it fast enough. <laughs> and like what, it, yeah. what adds to their sort of interesting thing. What I think and that's, I think what makes for that chemistry too is smart directing on Soderbergh's uh, side of things, because especially scenes like even in the ending where she gets the check, like he lets that scene go on so long of, oh, yeah. of her. And you know the, whole, and time you know the whole time that it's like a huge check and he's just fucking with her. Yeah. And he just lets it play. But then, yep. like, but what he achieves when there's that turn is so, like, emotional. hmm Yeah. hmm But then it's immediately undone by an insufferable Cheryl Crow song. Oh, yeah. If you want to know how this is uh, artistically a little down market from traffic, it ends with every day is a winding road. <laughs> that was such a weird, like, I felt so good after watching this movie, and I was like, wait, I know this song. Wait a minute. Is this Cheryl's Cheryl Crow's Every Day is a Winding Road? It's like, damn it. At least a la at least a la Peter Gabriel, she did not write an original song about Aaron Brockovich. Right. Oh my god. Yeah. Did we talk about that? We did not. We it need, was the worst. We need to throw back to that for a second and say that Peter Gabriel should be ashamed of himself. <laughs> I have been so upset by that guy's musical career. Do you remember that thing he did? He did that album of covers, including Bony Vare's Flume. I remember it well. <laughs> Only love is, is all to lose. It was unbearable. <laughs> And now I'm like, what is this song? Is this song like blatantly about Edward Snowden? Like, how dare you, Peter Gabriel, write a song about Edward Snowden? Who do you think you are, Bob Dylan? Like, give me a break. Be real. Yeah. Anyway, back to Aaron Brockovich. I don't know. Did you enjoy the movie throughout? Oh, yeah. You did. I think it definitely. Are we getting to ratings? Let's get there. I think it's teetering on the line definitely to like inherently good, bad. Cause yes. it's, it's the story about people who have like lost loved ones and body parts and like have been sick for ages because of a, like a scary corporation poisoning them like negligently. So, right. Um, no, but there's so many watchable moments that I think I'm going to land on good, good. Okay. Yeah, I'll come with you. I, in retrospect, I think I actually liked it more than when I was watching it. It's funny to tr- to make a whistleblower movie that's like so centrist um, in right. its like content and in its aesthetics and in its structure. Um, because like, I mean, we'll talk about the insider in a second, but it's not one of those movies that gets into like the you know, the horrifying psychology of what it's like to be up against this. Like, it's just a movie about um, a character you know well getting over an obstacle that's, like, made, uh, you know, get overable. She can do it, and she does it. What I think is interesting, too, comparing this to Oliver Stone, like, Oliver Stone's movie is clearly, like, a movie about Democrats made by Democrats for Democrats. 
Sure. And this one feels like this is a movie made by Democrats, but like the, all the people in it are probably Republicans. So there's something like fascinating oh, about yeah. that. Well, there's something very, you know, again, down the middle Hollywood about being like a film about like white working class people with some dirt under their fingernails who are thankfully not politically problematic at all. It's fun for the whole family. Okay. I'll come with you. Good, good. good. Great. Case closed. Um, let's talk about a movie where the case never really closes because uh, it's in our mind and in all the power structures that surround us. Um, the Insider, 1999, uh, a film by Michael Mann, where the whistleblowing happens. God, it's such a film by Michael Mann. <laughs> it's very much a film by Michael Mann, who we've already established that Noah is a huge fan of on this podcast. Uh, no, that's not true. That's, that's, that's not necessarily untrue. All. all the movies we've talked about have been bad. That's true. What Have we done anything besides Public Enemies? Um, did we do Collateral? No. I, we just wish we had. Yeah, every day I wake up was like, did we do Collateral? I don't think we did. I wish <laughs> for us to one day do Collateral. So The Insider is about, again, based on true events, um, a chemist who works for a major tobacco company is fired and is called upon by um, producer from 60 Minutes to uh, come on the show and basically blow the whistle on this company. Although that guy's played by Al Pacino, the whistleblower is Russell Crowe. Uh, Pacino's character, the producer, does not know how much stuff or even what Crow has to say about his experience. Um, and this movie's set in, I think, 94, because OJ's on, or maybe it's 95. OJ's on the front page of the Times. Right. Um, uh, and at this moment, you know, there's sort of like, it's the gradual culture. It's a big shift in the cultural falling out with cigarettes. The companies at this time had not admitted that nicotine was even addictive or that they knew that. The information that Jeff Wigand has is that they do know, and that in some cases are even uh, enhancing the potency of the nicotine um, to get more people to buy cigarettes. You go public and 30 million people hear what you gotta say, nothing, I mean nothing, will ever be the same again. Now the work we did here is confidential, not for public scrutiny, any more than our one's family matters. We're very serious about protecting our interests. He's got something to say. He wants to say it. I want it on 60 Minutes. Maybe for the audience, it's just voyeurism, something to do on a Sunday night. And maybe it won't change a thing. And people like myself and my family are left hung out to dry, used up, alone. What happens is very winding, I think partially because of real-life events and partially because, like, Michael Mann likes to make these... They're not exactly non-traditional stories. It's not like he's playing with the order of something like Tarantino. It's just like the arc of the movie does not register with you as a normal A to B film like Aaron Brockovich does. Well, that's the um, thing. It's 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 weirdly two films. It's about the lead-up to him actually being recorded giving this interview, which is a yeah. good hour and 15 minutes of this movie, and then the back yeah. hour, 15 minutes, is the process by which they got the interview out. Right. and Which, if I can say parenthetically, think, is not as interesting as the former half. See, oh, wow, I kind of think the back half is more exciting. But by that time, in the context of, you know, watching the movie from start to finish, I was so, like, disoriented and tired and overcome by what we were doing. And I didn't understand the space in the middle of the movie where you're not sure whose movie it is. Right. Um, that was exactly what I was just going to say is that like, I feel like by the middle of the movie, you need to, the movie needs you to care about Russell Crowe a lot. Like when his yes. like, family starts leaving and whatnot, that I don't know that I felt that. I didn't either. I was uh, like, I, I thought you like were just a supporting role and the I was supposed to be watching this thing about Al Pacino and his wife. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Mike well, and Wallace as portrayed has... by Christopher fucking Plummer. <laughs> That's Mr. That's Wallace. So <laughs> well, I think for this one, it 
I mean, for all of them, as I think we've been saying, it all hangs in, because it's such a, it's such a long movie and B, like a, a lot doesn't actually happen. It, it all yeah, hangs. This, hour, this one's 240. Sorry. Oh Christ. And <laughs> you have to care about the characters and you have to be entertained by the performances. And I have to say, and I want to ask you, did you have a, mo- a moment where you're like, when is Russell Crowe going to be in this movie? And then you realize it's the blonde guy. Um, are you being serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I didn't know. Like, I didn't realize when he was cleaning out his desk and walking out, I'm like, who's this blonde guy that we're following, like, in his face? (laughs) I was so blinded by, like, how close up these shots were that I'm like, I don't know who that is. Like, show me a middle shot. Not going to do it? Then I'm not going to know that it's Russell Crowe. And then it wasn't (laughs) until he got to the house and they were, like, having, and he's like, where's the soy sauce? I need to buy soy sauce. I was like, oh, that is Russell Crowe. Yes. Um, this is back in the day funny. where Russell Crowe like was actually acting, and it was a it was a fine time. Yeah, it's uh, you know post LA Confidential, pre Gladiator, pre Beautiful Mind. Are you um, not entertained? Is him as an actor screaming to us out there in the seats? It's a weird, it's a weird performance though, because um, it's very, it's actually it's more similar to his turn as john nash than his turn as maximus right he's an awkward very interior guy who you singled out one of the weirdest moments of the movie where his wife's like honey where are you going he's just been fired and he's just like oh i have to go get soy sauce and you're like russell crowe what are you doing in this part um right he just becomes this kind of tortured guy who occasionally lashes out in a very russell crowe way but all the conflict is just like happening in his cheeks (laughs) and behind his glasses it's yeah, but he's so. Let's compare that the, to Pacino. Oh yeah, Pacino's just doing Pacino. Get it on the news, Mike. <laughs> There's yeah, this movie's full of grade A Pacino grandstanding. And also, like Michael Mann just likes to be so. Like I understand now why Black Hat was made the way it was, because he just likes <laughs> to, he likes to just be so up in like the action, like you know. With, there's that ridiculous scene where he's like on his cell phone and he it turns out he's like 30 feet into the ocean you know yeah. like that's such a stupid unnecessary like hey I'm Michael Mann yeah. I'm gonna show you something funny like look he how, did it because look it was how visually hard. goofy I can be yeah but I don't think he thinks it's goofy I think he's just like look at like this tension that I've made you feel with these like visual juxtapositions look at how alone of- he looks now yeah, and Crow in that hotel room that turns into the hallucination of his daughters. It's very... I hated that. <laughs> See, that's like a very Oliver Stone choice, but I always feel like Michael Mann doesn't think of it as sensationally as Oliver Stone thinks of it. I think Michael Mann thinks of it in like a nervy kind of way. I mean, I think they both suffer from the uh, same sort of indistinguishable malady of being an interesting director from like 15 years ago. (laughs) And they just have not figured out how to portray the world in which we live now and the world we've come to expect through movies like on screen. But it's ambitious. Oh, well that's like why these guys keep working is because they put ambitious spins on like pretty palatable Hollywood stories. Well, because I was thinking, so a movie that we talked about doing but did not do for this because we didn't want to watch it was uh, Concussion, the Will Smith, Dr. Amalu whistleblower movie. About Tell the, the truth. NFL hiding, yeah, hiding its CTE thing. I was thinking that, you know, that's the line everyone knows from that movie. Tell the truth. Compare that to in this movie, uh, Wygant, played by Russell Crowe, is getting off the phone, not understanding why they're not running a segment and going, I told the truth. I told the truth and he's resigned. He doesn't even understand what he's saying, but like that's the level of movie that Michael Mann is putting on here. A movie that, uh, with so much sort of like, you know, evil phone calls you're not even seeing that the idea of the truth is like ruined, which I think is artistic and I think it's smart. And in some ways I think it's kind of noble, Yeah, um, but it doesn't make a super watchable movie. No, I would disagree. I think it was sort of an interesting choice in to only show you a very paranoid version of one side of the story. Like, if you included the tobacco people, would that be your suggestion? Oh, no, no, no. It's not that I want that. It's that the idea of... I'm talking about the idea of the truth. The truth is entirely compromised here. And I think when you're talking about normal Hollywood whistleblower fare, what you want to know is that you're on the side with the person who has a simple truth and they can get by on that. And you're saying that this movie lacks that simple truth. Yes. 
because Wygant is not your main character and that Pacino in his involvement here is kind of like is over his career. I think that's what's compromised about the movie, but also how the movie ultimately like sort of lands gracefully is the fact that ultimately it's the like a small person versus a major corporation. And one of the major corporations happens to be like big tobacco. So mm-hmm. like morally you're, that's intact, but where I think you're compromised, it, ultimately it's not, it's almost not a whistleblower movie. It's more of a like workplace drama. It's more like, it's closer to network than I would say than, uh, like Aaron Brockovich. That's interesting. I kind of like that. But I think what ultimately pushes this one into, I'm going to say good, bad for me is the fact that it bit off, it bit off a lot and it was admirable, but ultimately it was too much for it to chew. I think, yeah, that's a very simple, that's a much simpler way of putting it than this movie did. And I, and I agree. Like, I think the, the thing that I think is promising about this movie is honestly, I wonder what would happen if you just recut what was there. I bet you could make a more entertaining movie. Um, oh yeah. You you don't have to make a different movie cuz there are good performances and good dialogue and entertaining scenes. I just don't know why it's two and a half movies. If Russell Crowe were the Nicolas Cage of this movie, I think it'd be a lot better. <laughs> well put. So Bruce McGill uh god my- damn it Bruce McGill. It's an unbelievable... This is one of the films of Bruce McGill. Who knew? Um, the tobacco company lawyer says in the Mississippi courtroom, I have objected. I have rights. Bruce McGill, oh, you got rights. And you got lefts and ups and downs and middles. And then screams at him to wipe the smirk off his face. And the actor looks genuinely frightened. It, it, yeah, it's an amazing sequence. I mean, all these movies, though, have that sort of grand speech. It's just yeah. sort of interesting, though, that like... Neither Pacino nor, um, oh, fuck, Russell Crowe. Let me do that again. I think it's interesting, though, that neither Pacino nor Russell Crowe have really the speech. Yeah, it tells you what you need to know about this movie, that the speech is from a character who you're not even sure what his position is. That's like his only speaking line. Yeah, he's got a couple others, but... Like, why does he steal the spotlight for 30 seconds and then we never see him again? Like, what was the thought there, Michael? I mean, it's such a, like, Alec Baldwin being added to um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross yeah. moment. Where, like, he needs to yeah. be there for, like, to give you the tension of the movie, but ultimately, like, he's not a character <laughs> you care about. You're right, but at least Alec Baldwin's, like, a the tone setter. He's the world setter in that movie. And this speech happens two hours in from a character yeah. you don't know. Well, I have one final question about the genre, and I think what determines for me, like, what makes these movies good or not as a category is when you ask the question, was it worth it for the protagonists? You sort of have to feel good about it. And I feel like that's also one of the reasons that The Insider is not, like, is not good good. It's because, like, Russell Crowe's life gets fucked, and it, like, never gets put back together. Yes, Totally. Um, but with, like with Aaron Brockovich, really... she ends up with a two million dollar check, and you know, with with uh, Snowden, we don't even know what happens to him because like that movie got made too early. <laughs> In Snowden, the he was trying too hard to tell you that it was worth it, right? Yeah, by with that but that's what I think is. Scene. But that's also sort of like what's subtly brilliant about the Insider is the fact that there is that sequence where he actually on camera says. I would do it again or whatever. Yeah. But then like, you don't think maybe that's the the question that, that it sort of brings out in me is like, should he have done it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Cause again, I don't think Michael Mann understands that family dynamic His life seemed weird and miserable. And we were supposed to sympathize with them because he took a job for the money and then had to downsize the size of his house to another house that was fine. Um, like, I don't think, well, that's like the weird thing about them. That's what I found so weird about the beginning of the movie too, is like, wait, are these people like already on the rocks and this just like what pushed them over the edge or were they like completely happy together? Cause you see him like being happy with his daughters, but there's not a lot of like, I was happy with my wife. Yeah. Is that, uh, is that Gina Gershon? His wife? Gina Gershon is the, the lawyer that, uh, Christopher Plummer gets to play with. (laughs) 
Well, that I mean, the part of the the girlfriend or the part of the significant other in these movies is often very thankless and not nowhere is it more thankless than here. Oh yeah. I mean, Aaron Eckhart, that's a great part, but like that category of roles is not one that actors would have a great time in. Yeah, but Aaron Eckhart just has to have that mustache and be like friendly around the kids and like, you know, get his paycheck and go home happy. Yes, indeed. Maybe if he's lucky, he'll get a best supporting actor. Nomination. Certainly, we're not. We're certainly not giving Aaron Eckhart an Oscar. <laughs> well, hey, uh, we'll see. Bleed for this and uh, Sully. He could be nominated twice this year. And oh my not god! Win. Have you seen Sully? No. Or White Flight, as I like to call it. I think that's a Michael Mann uh, conspiracy movie about redlining, but um... well, Oliver Stone's already working on. A making a movie about the making of Sully because he's just, he's going to meta levels that are not even appropriate. Well said. Yeah, I think I think the greatest uh, thing that Snowden can hang its hat on right now is that it's a a last name s starting biopic that managed to be a little bit better received than Sully this fall. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, um, pal! This has been a real pleasure. As always, my friend, uh, and to all of you, please find past episodes, if you so choose, at BeRealGuys.com. Follow us on Twitter, at BeRealGuys. Of course, real is two E's, like a film reel. You can email us, uh, BeRealGuys at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. You can listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, all that stuff. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much again to Scott Meslow uh, for uh, guesting on the pod. You can read all of his uh, culture and entertainment criticism at GQ. And I believe this does it. Was this worth it for us, Noah? We've paid a price. Um, yeah, no, I definitely, I feel better on the other side of this. I'm glad I blew your whistle this week. That's not how I'm going to end the show. <laughs> <laughs> but let's do it. Can Bye. Whistle, baby, whistle, baby, let me know. Girl, I'm going to show you how to